you're a guy, it's not good for you to be alone. God-designed solution is the girl you're married to. She's a practical partner. She makes up what you lack. For what? The mission of God for which you are made, and if you're a Christian, redeemed. She's critical, she's essential, and she's to be your intimate companion. The wife of your youth is the companion for life. She's bent to bring you joy, fulfillment. That's why Proverbs chapter 5 says, be exhilarated in the wife of your youth, literally intoxicated. Because she is meant to bring the richest kind of pleasure and companionship and essential partnership. God is proud of her, and you need to be. You gave her your name, and she bears your name because you said when you did that, you get it. God gave it her, and you need it. What you're building together for the cause of intimacy, not aloneness, requires three priorities. All right, so I'm stalling. I'm giving everybody a chance to land. (laughs) Let me stall just a little bit longer. How do we know this is a good solution? Because of who saw the problem and who solved the problem. Because of how man reacted to every other earthly solution. Not good. No helper suitable for me. Because of how God solved the problem. Fashioned like an artist, custom made. How God presented his solution to the problem. And how Adam received that solution. Now we're talking. All of those things validate and point to the priority and the quality of that solution gifted by God. But this cause requires part two. So here you go. Adjusting, calibrating. Number one, requirement number one, leaving. The word leaving means to abandon and forsake. My daughter uh, let me take home, well, she, her teacher let her take home the uh, class parakeet, Sparky. <laughs> and we had the parakeet for the weekend. We brought Sparky back. That was a Christian school at the church that I pastored. I pulled into my parking spot. I got out of my car. I opened the door. I picked up the cage, and the cage door flew open and Sparky went off like he was shot out of a gun. I mean, that's the fastest parakeet I ever saw. I mean, gone. And I look at my little girl who's dumbfounded. That's forsake and leave. I'm enthused to leave. Leaving means to forsake and abandon. I ask the question, how far do you go? Out of the tent, out of the family compound? Think Old Testament. They would live in a group, nomadic. Out of the community, out of the country, how far do you go? How far do you go? However far you have to go. And I want you to hear this. Leaving requires necessary distance. And leaving is not a physical proximity. What are you leaving? I'm going to give you two things. And this is the priority 
Let me start it differently. This is the authority and the priority pill. For some of you, this is going to be a horse pill. You know the big ones that are hard to swallow? Because in this culture, nobody's selling this. Leaving means, number one, you leave a trusted authority, mom and dad, whom you obey, to establish a new trusted authority. You're leaving the authority of parents. Parents have authority. They should. Children, obey your parents. That's authority. They have authority. They're the head of you. When you get married, you leave that previous trusted authority to establish a new trusted authority. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 because I want you to see this because it needs to be punctuated I believe, in a culture that's confused about headship and authority. The husband is transferring his authority to Christ. He's coming under the direct authority of Jesus Christ and all Christ-appointed authorities. Civil government is an authority appointed by God to keep the peace and keep the law. A husband is coming under the direct authority of Christ and all Christ-appointed authorities. The wife is coming under the headship and authority of her husband. Not her father, her husband. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, I want you to understand, says Paul, that Christ is the head of every man. He's the authority. And the man is the head of of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. In his incarnation, as a human being, he subordinated his will to the will of the Father. Thy will be done. If this cup can pass from me, let it. But if not, thy will be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. Christ, in his incarnation... Not eternally, but in his incarnation, subordinated to the authority of his father. The wife subordinated to the authority, the headship of her husband. The husband subordinated to the headship of Christ and all Christ-appointed authorities. Government, elders, obey them to have the rule over you. Chapter 13 in Hebrews for they watch for your soul. I, as an elder, have a measure of spiritual authority over a husband. Not because I want to run his life, but because there's spiritual responsibility to his life. And when there's shepherding issues that require change, elders are to enjoy a measure of submission. Soldiers submit to officers. Wives submit to husbands. Masters enjoy the subordination, the willing, voluntary fellowship of those whom they employ. This is the idea of leaving authority. Listen to Ephesians 5.23. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body. So the reason I call it a horse pill is because it's hard to hear if you're not a biblically oriented person. The one statement to wives in Colossians 3, which we referenced, 
is wives, submit yourself to your husband. The word is tasso, to arrange, hupo, under. Hupo, tasso, arrange yourself under. Not as inferior, as an equal in value, but in terms of role and responsibility and position, you're aligning yourself up voluntarily under the leadership of your husband. It is to honor and follow. Leaving says, I used to obey my father and mother. I'm now going to arrange myself under the leadership of my husband. The husband says, I'm arranging myself under the leadership of Christ. I am following him. The first priority of marriage involves leaving. Seeking a new trusted authority in the place of a previous authority. Wives, hupotasso, one word, and it says it's fitting in the Lord. What does that mean? It's the way God designed it. Jesus wasn't less than the Father. It's not like you're inferior. It's not about your value, your worth. It's about how God designed it. The home has a leader. It's the husband. And if that transfer of trust doesn't take place for the husband, there's no leaving as a pillar to that relationship. You must leave. And there must be a new authority structure established. They're saying, you don't know my husband. He needs help. Well, that's why we're here. All husbands need help in leading. But as we're going to see in the last session, even if your husband is a, is a disobedient to the word leader, the women are told to follow him. It's an essential priority. It's about honor and respect. Hupotasso is, I'm coming out from under a previous authority to establish a new authority. The second piece of leaving has to do with not only leaving their authority and establishing a new authority, it has to do with pursuing affirmation and and finding satisfaction in that affirmation. Here's the way I'd like to say it. You leave not only the authority, but you also pursue a new place of approval. Children are oriented by default to seek the smile of a parent. They want that affirmation. My daughter's 34 years old, and if she does a particular thing that's admirable, I'll get a picture. She's a cosmetologist. She she does hair, and in the past, when she was working full-time, periodically, I'd get a picture of a hair job she did. That's probably said wrong, not a hair job. What do you do, a hairstyle that she did? Because I'm her father, and she still enjoys the affirmation of her father. That's built into children. Children chase a parent's smile. 60% of men chase the approval of their father, whether he's alive or dead, a recent study said. They want dad to be pleased. You may not get that smile, but it doesn't mean you don't want it. And some of you have chased it, not gotten it, and now you've decided you're just going to you're just going to conclude, I'm not getting it, so I don't care. But the truth is, you do want that. 
bottom line is you transfer that pursuit to your spouse. You chase one another's smile. The affirmation, the leaving of the approval and affirmation of a parent you find in your spouse. It's why wives are to respect their husbands, because there's an affirmation in that respect. There's an honor to that. Husbands, when you love your wife and you consider her as more important than yourself, there's a value to that. There's an affirmation to that. It's why it says, husbands, love your wife, and let's get love right. Love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling that produces roses and flowers and and chocolates. Love is an other-centered, sacrificial action you take whether they deserve it or not. We know love by this. There's a verse you should know as a as a husband or a wife, 1 John 3.16. We all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know that verse. Here's 1 John 3.16. We know love by this. This is it. This is the, 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 the epitome of it. This is the iconic expression of it. This is the model of it. It's not love if it doesn't look like this. We know love by this. That he himself, it's emphatic. He didn't pay somebody to do it. He did it himself. It's personal. He himself laid down, it's sacrificial, his life for us. It's beneficial. So the need that we had He sacrificed to meet, and when did he do such a thing? When we were his enemies. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know what love is? Unconditional. You know what love is? Sacrificial. You know what love is? Personal. Do you know what love is? Functional. You seek, husbands, to love your wife as a priority, the only thing you heard, if you're living in Colossae, love your wife. You show her that. Ephesians 5 says, love her like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There is no loving that doesn't involve sacrifice. And there's no loving that's deserved necessarily. Loving can be undeserved from the party that you're loving or toward the party that you're loving. Husbands, love your wife and listen. Listen. Don't ever be embittered. The word embittered comes from bitter, which means, comes from a Greek word, pakria, which means to stab or to poke. Don't let the injuries that have occurred when you've been stabbed, don't be embittered, which means don't stab back. Because listen, in a marriage, close proximity, humanity, depravity, sometimes the enemy, there's what? Injury. And when injury occurs, don't ever be harsh. Don't hurt her back. Why is that? You want her to stay soft. You can make a woman hard. She's not built to be hard. She's built to be soft and responsive to the needs of a husband. You can make her hard and calloused for survival's sake, which is why Paul says, Husbands, you make sure you love her well, That'll give her security. And you make sure you don't harm her when she harms you because you don't want her hard. Because you want her to chase your smile and you need to be chasing hers. 
You're leaving a previous authority and a previous pursuit to establish a new priority because you have a new authority and you have a new desire. Marriage is about the priority of chasing one another's smile, and it's about the authority of following somebody else's leadership. Number two, cleaving. Cleave to his, and, the, and, and he shall cleave to his wife. Now, how many of you have used the word cleave recently? Nobody uses that word, and if you do, you're inclined to say, I'm cutting meat, right? I'm using a cleaver, Okay. Cleaving. Some of your Bibles say hold fast, and if it does, you can keep that Bible because that's a good translation. The Hebrew word for cleave literally means to glue or to solder. The idea is, is that you are to be glued to or soldered to, it's used of gluing pottery, you're to be glued to your wife. So if it's taken literally, When the couple comes down the aisle, she gets unveiled, the father hands her off, go through the vows, somewhere in the ceremony, a good pastor like me is going to take out a tube of human crazy glue, I'm going to have them stand shoulder to shoulder, and I'm going to glue them together. That's literally what it would require. Well, you all know that's not what it means, because it's a figurative use of the word. It's not a literal physical thing, it's a figurative relational thing. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 23, and I want to show you one of God's favorite words, this word applied to his people. Because in God's economy, this is one of his favorite words in Deuteronomy, he uses it multiple times. He keeps saying to his people, cleave to me, cleave to me, cleave to me. Joshua, who who succeeds Moses, is at the end of his life in Joshua chapter 23. It's his last big speech to the people of God. He's going to conclude it by saying, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. It's that speech. It's that declaration. And there's an exhortation that represents the heart of God in Joshua chapter 23. And I want you to find the word cleave. It's not translated cleave in this passage. But it is here. Verse 6, be very firm then, chapter 23, Joshua to the people of God. Be firm, convinced, resolved. Be be firm then to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. Be faithful to the word of God, resolved to that. Verse 7, the consequence, in order that you may not associate with these nations. These are the pagan nations that they were to drive out. I don't want you to associate with these nations. These which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. Verse 8, but you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. What word is cleave? Cling. What is the first word in verse 8? But. But is an adversative conjunction. It means on the other hand. On the other hand, I want you to cling, cleave, hold fast to me. I want you to do the opposite of verse 7. What's verse 7 about? Idols. 
other gods. I don't want you, notice what he says in verse 7, which is why I like this passage so much. I don't want you to associate with nations who have rivals to me. An idol is a rival to God. It's an alternative to God. I don't want you to hang out with people who have rivals. I don't want you to mention the name of my rivals. I don't want you to swear by my rivals. I don't want you to serve them. I don't want you to bow down to them. I want you to cling to me. Now feel this. Here's what cleave involves. Establish an exclusive, unrivaled relationship. This pill is the exclusivity pill. This is you have no rival pill. This pill says you are my priority. You are the one to whom I am faithful alone. The reason I like this passage is God says this. This is an exclusive relationship. I don't want you to have anything to do with anything that competes with me and the priority of this relationship. I want you to cling to me. I don't want you to name their names. I don't want you to bow down to them, serve. I don't want you to have anything to do with them. Cleaving has to do with dealing with rivals. Cleaving has to do with the covenant vow promise that says, you have no rival. Marriage involves a relationship where you demonstrate they have no rival. This is an exclusive, unrivaled relationship, and I don't want you to have anything to do with anything that rivals me. If you're taking notes, you can look at Jeremiah 13. I don't have time to turn there because we got lunch coming. But Jeremiah 13, the prophet is told to put on a waistband. Wear the waistband and don't get any water on it. Wear it for a while. Then take that waistband over to the river and put it in a rock and let the water wash over it. And then you come back to that waistband, which has been in the water, and you put it on. And what you'll find out is it doesn't cling to you. It falls off. And the waistband that no longer cleaves or clings is a symbol of my people. My people who have stopped being loyal to me. They don't cling to me. They are loyal to other nations and other gods and other things. You need to put on a belt in your marriage that says, I am exclusively committed to you. You have no rival. So let's talk rivals. What kind of rivals can you have in a culture like ours? Well, you can have ministry rivals. Charles, uh, pastor of First Baptist Atlanta. Charles Stanley, thank you. It's a bad day when I can't remember that name. Charles Stanley just went to be with the Lord. You know that he was divorced? Part of the reason there was a conflict between Andy Stanley and his father because his father was divorced by his mother. Do you know what his mother said her reason for divorcing Charles was? He had a mistress. She named the mistress. Do you know who the mistress was? First Baptist Church of Atlanta. The priority in my husband's life, she said, the church, ministry. Ministry can be a rival. Hobbies can be a rival. 
in Alabama, where I moved from, every fall there are hunting widows. They don't see their husband for however long the season lasts. He's in the hunting blind. There's football rivals in Alabama. There's interest. That's what I talked to you about, playing sports on the weekends and golfing on Tuesdays. That's a hobby rival. So if you're married to me and you're Karen and you're early on in your marriage, what is your conclusion? I'm competing. Work rivals. Some people are married to their work. They spend an enormous amount of time and they, they invest and they prioritize that time to the point where there's a feeling of competition. Family rivals. Parents. Children. Listen, I have two children. I love my children. But they're not the center of our home. As a matter of fact, it's bad for the children to be the center of the home. I don't mind if you have a newborn and they require extra effort, but they cannot stay the center of your home. Whatever group they're in, whatever sport they're playing, whatever dance group they're with, whatever deal they're doing cannot be prioritized over the marriage relationship. That's not good for your children, and it's certainly not good for your marriage. Children rivals. Friend rivals. Hanging out with the guys, hanging out with the girls. I'm not saying you can't have any. Obviously, I'm doing ministry. Obviously, I have children. Obviously, there are, well, maybe not obvious, I have hobbies. I like things that go fast. I like a lot of things. But those things, you can have them. They just can't be prioritized above your marriage. This relationship can have no rivals. Let's talk the centerpiece of this principle. And no guys or no girls who compete with your guy or your girl. Female rivals if you're a guy. Male rivals if you're a girl. Emotional connections, conversations that go too long, that involve subjects that are too personal. Viewing things that compete with your spouse, chatting online, building relationships that compete with this relationship. This is the priority pill or the exclusivity pill united with the security pill. It's a dual action. Exclusivity, you could use the word fidelity, faithful, and that creates exclusivity. Fidelity creates security. We're in a culture where there's all kinds of attractions and distractions. So it can be another woman, it can be another guy. For most women, it's an emotional transaction first. For most guys, it's a physical attraction followed by an emotional transaction. My wife doesn't listen to me like you listen to me. You just get into this routine where you are trading something that's exclusive. When you get married, you're making a promise. You're trading something exclusive and you're sharing it in places or seeking it in places where it's not acceptable. It's improper. I grew up in an era where there was a song written by somebody, I'm a girl watcher. 
I'm a girl watcher, just watching girls go by. Anybody know that song? You afraid to raise your hand? Yeah. <laughs> I grew up with that song. Let me tell you what, watching girls comes natural if you're a guy. Guess when that ends? When you make promises. I don't care what she has on, doesn't have on, what she's driving. That's over. Because every woman, not your wife, is a rival to your wife if you prioritize her instead of her. Let me tell you what wives can't compete with. Images. First of all, they're doctored, they're manufactured. That's why pornography is so powerfully detrimental. A woman cannot compete with that, nor should she. First of all, it's an illusion. Second of all, it's addictive. Third of all, it doesn't require anything of you. It's a Twinkie that can't satisfy. It's salt water to meet a thirst need. Images, girl watching in Alabama, you watch girls and you don't care if people see you do so. I call it the rough, kind of rude way. You turn your neck, you ogle, you got other guys who are smooth as glass, hardly know they're looking. All of it's unacceptable. I had a guy sit in my office sometime in my ministry life. They came in to see me, a couple, they sat in the couch. I said, so what's the, what, what are we going to talk about today? And this is what she said, straight up. He watches women. And it's killing me. Not a very old couple. No, this is fairly early in their marriage. This is what he said to me. I can read the menu as long as I don't order. Now listen, I'm not a violent man by nature. (laughs) I really did want to hurt him. What I managed to do was say, let me, get, let me ask you a question. How in the world do you think that makes her feel? You feel like she's precious, one of a kind, fashioned by God, special? I'll guarantee you what she doesn't feel. And what you're doing is you're wrecking her heart. And what you promised is you'll take care of that heart. You're in a culture that is constantly stimulating you to self-satisfy to buy it, to click on it, to pursue it. And listen, it's not just men. And women get in trouble by their relationships online. And connections happen at work. 75% of affairs happen at work. It's close relationships, typically. It's not something you pay for. It's not something random. It gets developed. You need to protect your marriage from the danger and damage that comes from being unfaithful. And some of you have lived that reality. What you need to do is be restored to the commitment that has been violated in your promise to your spouse. Whether it's online looking, whether it's actual human transactions, whether it's conversations and texting, all of these things compete with the promise you made when you said, you're my girl, I agree with God, you're custom built, you alone are for me, and there is no rival. I'm not going to hang out with people who promote rivals. I'm not going to name the name of rivals. When I'm clicking on the screen, when I come to stuff on the television that competes with you, I'm not watching it. Leaving involves the priority communication. You're a one of a kind. You can trust me and you can count on me. 
And it's not when I'm present. It's even when you're not present. Because let me tell you what leaving does. It creates trust. I'm going to follow you, and you're following Christ. I can trust you. Let me tell you what cleaving does. I can trust you. I can be vulnerable with you. Because the lifestyle you live communicates to me that this is an exclusive, unrivaled relationship. And whether you're involved in the things that I was involved with, the fun stuff, the club stuff, the activity stuff, it's got to be diminished and subordinated to this priority. Number one, nothing else can provide it. Number two, you made a promise to prioritize it. Now, let me just spend, I'm just going to give you a few things. What happens if disloyalty happens? I want to comment on this because it, it requires, because that happens in our culture. It happens, has happened to some of us, whether it's real rivals with real people or virtual rivals. What do you do? How do you recover from disloyalty? Let me give you some comments as a pastor, both in principle and in practice. Number one, if you're the guilty party, own it. Own it. Admit it. Own it. Confess it. Don't justify it. Don't blame somebody else for it. Well, I wouldn't have done it if you had done whatever. No, you made a promise for better or for worse. I failed. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Own it. Number two, seek forgiveness for it. And if you're the injured party, grant forgiveness for it. Release it. Now, there's a couple things about biblical forgiveness, and you have to get this right. Forgiveness is not conditioned upon their repentance. Forgiveness is conditioned upon your own forgiveness. It's the whole point of Matthew 18. How many times do I forgive? Seventy times seven? How many? Let me tell you a story. You forgive out of the wealth of your own forgiveness. You're the 10,000 talent debtor. You own two million. They own you 100 bucks, 200 bucks. You begged for relief from God. He gave it. Somebody else begs relief for a far lesser debt. You release it. Otherwise, you're a wicked slave. And I'll tell you what's going to happen to you in this story. You're going to be handed over to the tormentors until all is repaid. Now, I don't know who the tormentors are, but I don't want to meet them. And so will my heavenly Father do to you if you do not forgive one another from the heart. Forgiveness has to happen if you've received forgiveness. And I'll tell you what else. You can't heal without forgiveness. That's why Ephesians 4 says, Be kind, tender-hearted." Forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. After it says, after it says, do not be embittered. Do not be bitter. Don't be malicious. Don't be angry. Don't express clamor, which is verbal altercation or physical altercation. Look, anger happens when you get hurt. That's natural. Natural is, I want to hurt you back. If I'm big enough and strong enough and I can actually hurt you, I may confront you face to face or I may slander you because I don't have the power to injure you for injuring me. So I'm going to hurt you from behind. 
And Ephesians 4 says, worthy walking is you do not hurt back. But instead, here's two verbs, be kind. You know, kind is be practically serving another person. Kind is you see a need, you meet a need. For who? The, the person who hurt me. And then it goes one better. Be kind and tender-hearted. Look, I might be nice to you if you hurt me, but I'll tell you what you can't do without the Spirit of God driving you out of the grace of God you've received. Be tender-hearted. Tender-hearted is soft. I'm not angry at you. I'm not cold toward you. I'm not giving you the silent treatment. Let me tell you what forgiveness is. It is releasing a debt because you've had a debt released. And you'll know it's present because you're kind and you have a heart that's soft. You say that's impossible. It's humanly impossible, but not by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, if I've just been released of an enormous debt that I owe somebody and you owe me 10 bucks, keep it. It's not going to hurt me because of what I've been given and been gifted to me. Release it. Own it and release it if you're the offended party. Number three, prove it. What do I mean by that? Do what any person who owns it and gets it would do. In other words, you're saying, I'm sorry, forgive me. The forgiveness is granted. Then prove that you're repentant. Do what repentant people do. Bring forth the fruits of repentance. If I've been a deceiver, make yourself open and vulnerable. Hey, honey, this is where I'm going. This is how long I'm going to be there. Here's my phone. You have all my passwords. Here's my computer. You have all my passwords. You can look at anything. You can know anything. I think that's a good preventative thing anyway. I want my wife to know where I am and what I'm doing. I want to have to lie to her because I won't lie to her. But if I've been unfaithful to her, A person who gets it wants to prove you can trust me. So you do what people do who own it and who get it. Two things, you stay away from the things that were the rivals. That's the Joshua 23 thing. You don't want to be anywhere near it. So you stay away. And number three, or number two rather in that whole idea is you get away. And what do I mean by get away? You invest in the person you hurt. You give value and priority to that relationship. You go on dates. You give gifts. You invest. You stay away from the competition and you prioritize the relationship you've injured. Now listen, and you're also, and I will just say this, if you're the offending party and you own it and you get it and you're seeking to prove it, be patient with your partner who you've hurt. Because I'll tell you what, restoration, forgiveness is release. Restoration is the restoring of relationship and trust. And that happens over time. They're not holding you accountable to pay a debt you can't pay. But they're expecting and examining by your life and choices whether they can trust you again. And trust is essential to intimacy. So be patient. Prove it, 
be proactive, get away, stay away, invest. Number four, get better at it. What do I mean by that? Whatever it is I'm trying to do to prove to my wife if I'm the offending party is I want to get better at it. Whatever I think is necessary, that's great. But I want to ask her, is there anything else I can do that'll help you? I want to get better at it. Repentance matures over time. And if you get caught doing something, you may repent, but nobody knows it because you got caught at it. So then you repent, you own it, and time has to go by, and that repentance, if it's present, is is embryonic, it's young. And repentance matures over time because as you grow, you get it. The injuries to Karen because she was competing with friends or athletics or activities or whatever, those things have matured over time where I go, I get it. Do I take my golf clubs on a family vacation? Never. Never. I have buddies say, taking your clubs? Not a chance. Because there's something matured along the way, praise the Lord, that says, you know what? I don't want her to compete with that. She's the priority. And on vacation, she's the priority. Get better at it. And maturity and repentance will help you get better at it. Number five, wait on it. Number five is wait on it. Be patient. Wait on it in the sense that forgiveness is initial. It's a conviction. It's a release of debt. But trust and relationship requires time and patience. Be patient. I'm not talking forever. Some people, they say, I've forgiven you, but they don't ever make any progress in showing kindness and tenderheartedness. That's not forgiveness. You can say you're forgiven, but Jesus said you've got to forgive from the heart. And that only happens if you, in your heart, have tasted forgiveness. So wait on it. Be patient for it. Number six, understand it. Listen, how did I get here? I've never had a person sit in my office and say, you know, I set out to do this. Yeah, I'm, I, I fully intended to blow up my marriage, ruin my reputation. Nobody says that because nobody intends to do that, but they do it. You need to ask yourself, if you're the offender, how did this happen? And the two of you need to talk together to say, how can we prevent this from happening? Because it's, it's always true that there are two parties in the failure. There's a reason people do what they do. I like to say it this way, hungry people eat. And marriages are not healthy. And unhealthy marriages create opportunity and vulnerability. So if I'm the offending party, I need to own it. But somewhere along the line, we need to talk where I have a better understanding of how it went down, and she has an understanding of what contributed to that failure. That's what I mean by understand. That's just maturing. That's not blaming Karen for my failure. That's on me. But there's adjustments that need to be made in the relationship that'll strengthen it so that I'm not vulnerable to it. Number seven, be supportive in it. 
man, if your husband's trying or your wife is trying, be supportive. Don't set the threshold, man, you can just keep failing. You know, you said you would, but you don't. Don't be that way. Be supportive. Be an encouragement. When they do good, catch them doing good. Number eight, fight for it. Your marriage is worth it. I'll tell you what, you read any studies about the consequences to kids spiritually and practically, socially and educationally in a family that goes through a divorce or a division, it's astronomical. And I'm not trying to beat up any of you who've gone through this. I'm saying to all of you, fight for this. It matters to God and it matters to your family, your children. We'll talk about that a little later. Number nine, trust God for it. Trust God for it. Listen, if it's hard work, God has to do it. You can't do it. Number 10, submit to God in it. What do I mean by that? Well, his word, submit to it. Follow the path prescribed by God for restoration and follow the people appointed by God to walk through life with you. Submit. The reason you get in trouble is you were proud. And when you're in trouble and you're trying to recover, you need to humble yourself and say, help me. Is there something I'm doing that I'm not seeing? Do you see any threats? I I ask guys periodically, do you see anything in my life that potentially puts me in harm's way? Anybody, anything? Because what I don't know, I don't know. And you need allies, and you need to submit to God, and you need to submit to the people of God if you're going to enjoy recovery from the damage that can happen in your home before your spouse and before God. How do you recover from disloyalty? Those are 10 things I'm thinking about. Those are priorities I'd pursue. Now, let me just say this. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is a bounty of grace and mercy. God is in the restoring business. Every injury, significant and deep, is not recovered from. That's why hard-hearted adultery is such a dramatic, destructive thing. But I don't care where you are. I've been alive long enough, and I know enough about the gospel. God can restore and redeem for great good and great glory if you'll walk that path. And what the people of the world need to see is a God who fixes broken people and broken relationships, and he can. Leaving says, you have no rival. Leaving says, you can trust me. And if that has been broken, the first step is to rebuild that priority and that conviction. Does that make sense? Say amen. All right. Is that 11.30 or 12.30? So I'm good. All right, number three. I'm determined to be faithful today to the clock, which you know week to week I struggle with. All right, number three. Let's go back to it. Number three, third priority, or the third pill that I prescribe daily is the unity and intimacy pill. The two shall become one flesh, one flesh, unity. The, fl- the word translated flesh can and isn't often translated 
flesh. But it is not about a literal, physical union. Yes, intimacy physically is pictured in this, but it's not this. This is soulish unity. This is oneness of soul. The word flesh can be translated soul. It has to do with two entities that are no longer independent, but united as one entity. That's why Jesus said the two are no longer two. They are one. You want to know marital math? One plus one equals one. That's what the unity candle's about or whatever the symbol that's used today. Outdoor weddings are a new thing and candles don't work outdoors. So they use ropes and they pour sand in a container, red sand, blue sand, pink, whatever, and it all becomes mixed up sand. And then there's a sand representing God. And so there's three colors in the sandbox. (laughs) There's all kinds of images, but I'll tell you, whatever image you choose, you need to get this. The image of the candles, that's why you have her family. They come up and light candle number one. There's three candles. They light the first one. Groom's family comes up, lights the second one. And they're burning brightly during the first part of the ceremony. Then after the vows are made, the promises are given, the declarations are made out loud before God and witnesses, the couple goes over to the candles. And she takes the candle lit by her mom and dad. And she lights the center one with her husband who takes the candle lit lit by her, his mom and dad. And together they light the center one. And then they do this. They blow out their candles. And they put them back in the candelabra. And by doing that, they're saying, we're no longer two. It's not me and mine, his and, and hers. It's ours. It's not my money or your money. It's our money. It's not your car, it's our car. It's not your problem, it's our problem. Because we're no longer two. We're one entity. We have united. Look, I I know sometimes for business reasons you have separate accounts. But if it's a reason other than I want my money and I have my money, I'm not marrying you. Because you don't get it. Because it's a united our money. It's a united our family. This is the big challenge of divorced families, kids from other homes. They come together. It's a challenge because they're my kids, her kids, his kids. When you get married, you're saying, these are our kids. I know there's a biological mom or dad somewhere else, but I share the responsibility with you for investing in these children. And I know there's lots of nuance to that, but the convictional bottom line is we're a unit. So let me say it this way. When you get married, here's what you need to hear. We're going to unite in values and vision. We're going to act like one entity. If you're taking notes, you can look at Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, God says to the prophet, take a stick. It represents Judah. Take another stick. It represents Ephraim, Israel, the son of David, or Joseph. And you take those sticks and you put them together so there's no longer two sticks but one. Because my people, two nations, are going to become one nation under one king. They're becoming one unit. Two units becoming one unit. 
So that's an example of two entities functioning as one entity. And so when you get married, you have to work through values and vision. Values and vision. Look, you don't have to be united on what color the carpet is or what kind of car you buy. In Alabama, you may have to unite over what football team you're going to cheer for. Auburn, Alabama. But I'll tell you what, you probably can't be a Democrat and a Republican. You're in trouble because there's a value difference between those two entities. How you're going to raise your children is a value issue. How you're going to discipline your children. How you're going to do things with regard to Christ, God, and the church. How you're going to spend your money. 75% of affairs happen at work. 75% of divorces happen over money. How we're going to spend it. Whether we're going to borrow it. How we're going to be accountable for it. Those are value issues. Unity requires agreement. How many of you are familiar with the term detente? Remember, you used Cold War detente. You have the power to blow me up. I have the power to blow you up, United States, Soviet Union. Since we both have mutual destruction power, we're going to practice a policy called detente. Agree to disagree or peaceful coexistence. Because the consequences of resistance or collision or, or conflict is catastrophic. Some of you are living that way. Some of you have entered into detente. You're never going to agree about X. So you just don't talk about it. If it's a value or vision issue, you've got to talk about it. You have to work through it because you're on two different soul pages. Well, I don't believe we should spank. I believe we should spank. I believe they need Christian education. I don't think we need Christian education. I'm going to borrow it. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to use credit. I'm not going to use credit cards. All those kinds of things are value statements. You need to work through them. You need to get the help you need, have the conversations you need in order to become one. Because if you're not one, you're not united. And detente. Peaceful coexistence is not unity. It's the absence of conflict, but it's not the, the foundation for intimacy. Now listen, if you're a girl, you're different than a guy. You're a woman. You think different than he thinks, and you're supposed to. I don't care how fast you run or how high you jump or how smart you are. Whatever it is you are, you're not a guy. And a guy is not a girl. They're different genetically. They're different dispositionally. You're different, and you're supposed to be different, which is the whole complementarianism, corresponding. You've got to fit. You can't do two guys and fit. You can't do two girls and fit. You're different. You're physically different. You're emotionally different. You're made out of different stuff. You were made at a different time. You're made for a different purpose. You're different. And let's be practical. You grew up somewhere. Karen grew up in Arkansas. Arkansas is not New Jersey. Life works different in the country, rural community that she was born in and her parents are from. She was raised in a particular culture. I'm raised in a South 
Jersey outside of Philly culture. That's different. So now we get married. We got to work through those differences. You married somebody different. There are differences. Premarital counseling is designed to highlight those differences and give you a head start. But some of you got married and you didn't realize how different you were. And all of a sudden you're in one of these. Guess what you need? Help. You have constructive communication. I got a whole thing I'll do some other day about conflict resolution. You're bummed because I didn't. I'm not going to do it today. (laughs) Maybe I'll do it today. Maybe I'll give you the high-speed version. you got to work through the conflict. And let me say this to you. Counseling is not just meant for the crisis. Get counseling to prevent a crisis. So many people come to me when I have so little to work with because you've hurt each other so much, you've been so frustrated, you've gone through this cycle of injury and heartache and frustration, and then you get there and you've got to try to somehow get it together. That's a long, hard road. If you're struggling with a values vision issue, talk about it constructively. And if you don't know how to talk about it constructively, enlist allies, partners, biblical counseling. And I look, counseling is not a bad word. I'm a pastor. I counsel. That's what shepherds do. God's people encourage, exhort, admonish. You've got the first or 2 Thessalonians 3 thing, you know, you, you encourage one another, you challenge, admonish one another, you try to support one another, lift them up when they're down. You need help. Get help. What you can't do is say, this difference we're going to live with because it'll deny you the treasure that is intimacy. And the antithesis to aloneness is Intimacy. So if I'm voting Republican and she's voting Democrat, we're not united. If I'm buying a red one and she wanted a green one, we can get home. If I'm disciplining the children this way and she says, no way, no how, we're not united. If I'm spending this money this way or I'm going through a process that is quick and and not in tune with her belief about how to make a decision... We're not united. Unity is becoming one, values and vision. And unity creates the opportunity for intimacy. And intimacy is soulish. It gets expressed physically. Physical intimacy can contribute to soulish intimacy, but it's the fruit of it, not the means to it. Intimacy is God's design, biologically and soulishly. My wife is not a man. She's designed to fit with me. And we got to work to be united in a world where we're naturally divided. That's the idea with this priority. The unity, intimacy pill becoming one. I'll close with this and we'll get done a little early, which is surprising. Um, So I want to save the next section for the last session. Um, In medieval days, true story. Nathan, you can validate it. You're a resident historian. In medieval days, they had an annual festival. At the annual festival, 
they would award to the husband and wife who by their testimony and lifestyle represented unity and harmony in that community as a couple. Do you know what they would get? A slab of pork. Do you know what that resulted in? Yes, bacon. Bringing home the bacon. You heard that before? You know what bringing home the bacon was a product of? Harmony at your home. Perceivable harmony awarded by the witnesses to say, you know what? You get the bacon. It's not only valuable at the medieval festival. It's valuable at your house right now. Leaving, cleaving, and becoming one is the place, not a physical place, a relational place that has authority and order, priorities. I'm seeking your smile, not my own. I've established an exclusive, unrivaled relationship. You have no competitor. Not an innocent thing or an obviously unacceptable thing. Intimacy, fidelity, rather, exclusivity, it produces security. You can give yourself fully to a person you trust. And unity says that we are aligned, values and vision. And we enjoy an intimacy soulishly that produces an intimacy in our home and in our life. That's the prescription for a healthy home. And it's an everyday, daily dose of those supplements and medicinal, spiritually beneficial priorities. Can you say amen to that? Amen is my way of getting you to agree with me. Father, thank you for the time that we have shared in your word. This is important, this perspective. Lord, these priorities are non-negotiable. You prescribed them. Lord, we want to align our marriage and our commitments to them. And Lord, as we talk through the lunchtime and maybe into the afternoon, it is my prayer that you will promote in us an appetite that says, I want to understand. I want to do better. I want to improve. And some of that's going to be blatantly obvious. We have to make adjustments. And I pray that we would report what God has already done as we have opportunity to say, listen, this is what I want to work on. I realize I'm not where I should be, and I want to improve to the end that we as a couple, we as a family can experience the life that God designed and intended. I want to work at this. That's my prayer. And Lord, for the homes where there's conflict, for the homes where there's a struggle, I pray that they would get the the benefit of support and objectivity. Lord, marriages are subjective. We see what we see. We believe what we believe. And sometimes we need the benefit of perspective, not our own, to see things that are essential to our progress and to the experience we desire in our home. We need faithful friends and good brothers and sisters and sometimes biblical counselors or pastors who will speak into our circumstances to give us perspective that's holding us back and injuring our potential and denying us the life that you intended in the gift of marriage. 
So, Lord, we're asking for help today. We're grateful for the clarity of your word. We're grateful for the, just the, the illumination that is foundational for our journey in the most significant relationship, humanly, we will ever have. So help us to enjoy what you created us to enjoy for your glory and for the blessing of our home and heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.